Hello, Jesse. Hello, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about Section 230? Absolutely. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is tech and innovation. Specifically, we're going to be talking about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This podcast was recorded on May 29th, 2020, and this sounds like a really complex subject, and its impact is incredible. Here's who's going to walk us through it today. My name is Jesse Blumenthal. I'm Vice President of Tech and Innovation at Stand Together and lead uh, the Tech and Innovation PI for our community. Now, right now, if I wanted to learn more about tech and innovation, all I would have to do, or specifically about Section 230, all I have to do is go to Twitter and Facebook because all of our constitutional experts are now today Section 230 experts, right? They all know all about it, and I thought, maybe we ought to find somebody who actually deals with this on a day-to-day basis and explain to us what's going on. So that's why, Jesse, I reached out to you recently and said, can you come and explain to us, what is Section 230, and where is it that we stand on this as a community? I'm happy to. I think you're absolutely right that the nation's Twitter epidemiologists have decided uh, that they should move on to dealing with Section 230. So Section 230 is actually really simple, right? It's 26 words. And what it boils down to is a principle that ought to be familiar to everyone in our community, and that's of individual responsibility. At its core, what it says is that individuals are responsible for their actions online, not the tools they use, and that platforms, uh, you know, the, the social media companies, uh, websites that offer comments, anyone who's in an interactive computer service can set their own rules and enforce them without fear of uh, ruinous lawsuits. And if you'll permit me a moment, I think the history of how this came to be explains a lot about how we got to a state of law that we're in today. You know, in the early 90s, just as the commercial internet was taking off, there were uh, message boards, lots of message boards, and in particular, two message boards, one run by CompuServe and one run by Prodigy. And, and they took very different approaches to thinking about the communities that they were building. One of them was really hands-off, right? A sort of anything goes... We're just here hosting a, uh, a place for people to speak and anyone can come and do whatever they want. And it was a bit like the Wild West and quite frankly, chaotic, right? Not a great place for, um, uh, lots of their users because, uh, there weren't shared norms or expectations or rules of the road. And so the other one came along and said, you know what? We, we, actually think we have a vision for the type of community we want to create. We don't want to create a, a space where kids can come and families can be confident that if their children are on the internet talking to people, that it's a safe environment. And so we're going to hire a bunch of people to watch the comments as they come in and make 
make sure that people are civil, that they aren't swearing, that they aren't posting graphic pornography or, or harassing each other. And both of these companies around the same time in the mid nineties get sued. And what happens in those lawsuits is that the courts really take a divergent path for the company that did basically nothing except we created a space and you all go and and do what you want with it the courts looked to the history of of bookstores in particular and said look if you're a shopkeeper who runs a bookstore and you like Dwayne, i can see in the video behind you have tons and tons of books uh you can't possibly be responsible for everything that any one author said and so we're not going to hold you accountable for fact checking every book in the bookstore that you run and so if you basically do nothing you're you're off the hook and people are responsible for their actions but if you want to uh curate your bookstore if you want to create a section that's appropriate for kids or young adults if you want to make sure that the nonfiction lives with the nonfiction and the fiction lives with the fiction and different age groups or interests have segmented sections of the store if you're if you're getting into that business then you're now responsible for, for every single word published in every single book in your store and and so congressman a republican from california on the flight home from back to his district um was reading about all of this in the a newspaper and thought to himself like this is a totally counterintuitive intuitive results because what you end up doing in this scenario is disincentivizing people from setting their own rules from trying to create different types of communities uh one community that's appropriate for kids one community that's appropriate for adults one community that's appropriate for just people who are interested in you know high fantasy fiction right and and if you can't have all of the lord of the rings and um, Game of Thrones books in one section without being responsible for reading every single page of thousands and thousands of books, that that is just going to stymie the growth of the commercial internet. And so that congressman, Chris Cox, got together with a Democrat, Ron Wyden, and wrote Section 230. The, there's a more interesting legislative history there, but but that's where this story comes from, right? A place where... If we want to have a thriving and diverse internet with lots of different people being able to say lots of different things, you need to make it so that individuals are responsible for their actions online, right? Like the author of a post is still responsible if they libel someone, um, but that the, the people who are facilitating that speech are able to set rules for their environment without being on the hook for every single user's actions. Is it, is it akin to, the idea that if someone were to put something down on paper that were libelous, if someone were to put something down on paper that was a threat or whatever, that you could sue the paper manufacturer? Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good analogy. Okay, okay. So let's look at Section 230. It says, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Like you said, 26 words, short and sweet. Why are we talking about it today? Because Twitter picked a fight with President Trump. So um, this is the problem with freedom, is sometimes people can make bad choices. And so 
you know, simply some say because, it's a, some say it's uh, a problem. Some say it's you know it's a feature. Yeah, no, it, it it's both a feature and a bug. Yeah, right. So uh, you know, it, as I've been talking to folks, particularly this week about uh, Section two hundred and thirty, though the, these public conversations pop up from t- time to time. What I've said over and over again is that Twitter is wrong, but Section 230 is right. Um, right. So Twitter has the right to set their own rules, right? They could mandate that they comp, that they only allow photos of dogs and not cats on the platform. They could mandate that, um, your tweet is 240 characters or 280 characters, but can't contain the word the right like they can set arbitrary and capricious rules but many of them would be stupid right and so i think we need to distinguish in these conversations from uh, between what are you allowed to do and what what should you do and that's where i think our community has been pretty clear so there there are two documents in particular that where we've laid out what we think the standards are last summer Stand Together and Americans for Prosperity joined 53 academics and 28 civil society groups in writing an open letter to policymakers who were considering changes to Section 230 that identified seven key principles uh, that if you're thinking about changing Section 230, these are the things you're making trade-offs against. And these are the, the types of concerns that you ought to have. And in, for each of those principles, um, we've laid out both uh, what the law says and, and what we think it ought to say, because there, there are real trade-offs there. That being said, just because you can say something or can set rules in a certain way doesn't mean that you should. And so in January, just after our, our last summit, the Stand Together community released a document that, that we called uh, Principles for Continued American Tech Leadership. And these are what we believe are the, the key ingredients that have gone on to make the U.S. by far the dominant global tech leader. It, it is not an accident that the vast majority of technology companies in the world, uh, quite frankly, aside from a handful of large Chinese state-backed firms, are American. In fact, if you look at the list of the top 30 uh, tech companies, no other country has more than one on the list, and 18 of the 30 are American. Um, and the, the first section of that document, of what does it look like for business to do the right thing, is our commitment on free speech. You know, we think that speech is good and more speech is better. We think that private companies are free to set their appropriate rules for the consumer bases that they serve, but that they should resist efforts both by government and from private interests to limit that speech. They ought to prefer more speech on their platform, and they should strive to create clear, understandable, and accessible rules that are enforced in an equitable and transparent manner. I think by that standard, that standard of what do we expect to see from business, Twitter has clearly failed, even though they're well within their rights to do so. What do you say to these folks who are out there, and I've, I've seen them i know they exist who are who are champions of the idea that these platforms twitter specifically are no longer acting like just a service provider but they're actually acting as a publisher and therefore they they don't have any uh, you know credibility or they don't have any standing under section 230 yeah so 
the first tell to discern um, Twitter experts from people who actually know something about the topic is anytime you see someone talking about the publisher versus platform distinction, that's not a thing. Um, it is a a mischaracterization and sort of invented concept uh, here. But but more broadly, I, I would say you can be angry about or disagree with any particular choice that a private company makes, right? Like Twitter makes a series of choices that we in the Stand Together community disagree with. They don't allow uh, political advertising. And we've spoken out uh, publicly and directly to senior leadership at that company to say, we think you're wrong about this. We think there's real value in political speech, especially paid political speech, and you ought to welcome that in your platform. But the risk that comes from the types of claims, Dwayne, that, that you raise is the, so what happens next? And I think this week we got a really clear example of what happens next. What happens next is the government comes in and gets to tell you or tries to tell you what, what your rules ought to be. And for anyone who is cheering on the president's actions this week, imagine a scenario where uh, President Elizabeth Warren or President Joe Biden or a President Pick whatever candidate you happen to disagree with the most. I don't really care who they are. And imagine them with the power to set rules for online speech. And I, I think it ought to be immediately clear why that is deeply problematic to people who are committed to free expression. Our network vision, we exist to break barriers and we want a society of mutual benefit that allows you know people to work together and improve each other's lives. When we think about Section 230 and we think about our network vision, how do we apply that? So I think uh, Section 230 is one of the three core ingredients of the modern Internet that enable that, right? So Adam Thierer at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University uh, talks about the three core ingredients that gave us the modern Internet, one of which is Section 230, which we've talked about at some length, one of which is a case from the 1990s called Reno versus the ACLU that at its core basically said the First Amendment applies to the Internet. So the First Amendment restrains government action on the Internet, too. And the third was a decision by the Clinton administration wisely in the mid-90s that said something that today seems kind of obvious, but at the time was pretty revolutionary, which is it's okay to do business on the internet, that it's the policy of the United States that the commercial sector ought to, that the private sector ought to lead. Um, and, and that was a real debate in the early nineties. It's really radical. <laughs> it is. Um, but the reason I say all that is because when you couple those conditions, when you couple the ability for the private sector to lead with first amendment protections that restrain government with Section 230 that allows for different companies to set different rules, you create the conditions where lots and lots of different types of companies can emerge. And in fact, one of the most frustrating parts of the Twitter conversations about Section 230 is that it ignores the wide variety of companies companies that are able to exist precisely because individuals are being held responsible for their actions and not the tools they use. So this is what a world would look like without Section 230. Without Section 230, the handful of large companies that currently exist would continue to exist. They would spend a lot more on lawyers. That is really 
great if you're a lawyer for Facebook or Google and kind of sucks for the rest of us because what enables competition in the marketplace, it's what enables someone to come along with a better idea, a new platform, right? What enables a Snapchat to emerge? What enables a Thumbtack to emerge? What enables Etsy or eBay or uh, Uber or Lyft or all, all of these services that are connecting individuals with each other across the internet is that the individuals are responsible for their behavior and not the tools. And so what, what would happen without Section 230 is there would be a flood of lawsuits by trial attorneys that would radically drive up the cost of starting or running a business that connects people, which means that the handful of large companies that currently exist that have very deep pockets could afford to protect their moats by hiring armies of lawyers and every Everyone else will get sued out of existence. And that's why we fight so hard on Section 230. It's because it protects that dynamism. It keeps those barriers away that allow the next people who have good ideas to come to the fore and try and make a case to consumers that they should use their products. Section 230, it sounds like, allows for an emergent order or a spontaneous order to thrive. And therefore, you know, you go back. I, I like to talk about other, other principles that are sort of the foundation for the four mutually reinforcing principles. And one of those foundational principles, spontaneous order, you talked a bit about that, where this allows for all these different ideas to come together and then create something that no one ever would have thought of. But there's also the idea that we're allowing people to solve for the knowledge problem because we don't know what people need. And certainly no one in, in D.C. knows what people need or want. But when you allow this spontaneous order to happen, they will work with the knowledge that's out there and solve people's problems, whatever they may be. When we think about equal rights in Section 230, how do we how do we look at it through that lens? Sure. So I think the equal rights application is what happens when something goes wrong, right? You know, the I don't want to just come across as the sort of sunshine and rainbows guy. That's not usually my reputation. Um, and I don't want to pretend like there aren't cruel and evil and awful people on the internet who do awful things to each other, right? Whether it's bullying or harassment or horrific crimes against children or fraud or identity theft, right? Like people are terrible to each other. The question is, who do you want to hold responsible for those actions, right? And when I think about what are the challenges with enforcing equal rights, one of the greatest challenges as it applies to tech policy is the inherent connectivity that doesn't map neatly onto the physical world. And this is where you, you tend to get a lot of complaints, particularly from state attorneys general. Right. Because if you're the AG of a state, you want to wear the little sheriff's badge on your chest and walk around and enforce the law. And, and AGs have a real role in law enforcement in their states and and often have an aspiration for higher office. We, we tend to call them aspiring governors for a reason. But but if you're a state AG and you're responsible for law enforcement in a state and that that's a real responsibility, there is a real tension with the inherent extraterritoriality of the internet. Two people can be sitting on opposite sides of the world 
and it so happens that the server they're using to connect with each other passes through Missouri, right? Because there there are major server centers in both Kansas City and St. Louis and elsewhere in the state. So does that give the Attorney General of Missouri the authority to go police a crime that was committed by someone in Massachusetts against a victim in California? And what Congress said in passing Section 230 and and in considering a whole host of federal laws related to the internet, this comes up in tax policy and, and other areas too, is that by the nature of the internet, what you are engaged in is interstate commerce. Um, and so it is to our benefit and right that we regulate that at the federal level. That's why AFP supports federal privacy legislation and opposes a lot of the hodgepodge attempts to regulate the commercial use of data at the state level. That's why we think that Section 230 creates the right legal system and is right to preempt a lot of state-level lawsuits and force you to rely on federal law and federal crimes. I think we've talked a bit about a lot of concepts that lead towards mutual benefit. We can see how allowing allowing companies to run their own platforms can be mutually beneficial because then we have those those platforms actually exist. One thing I think we we should emphasize is that when it comes to equal rights, these companies still have the right to say what goes on in their own business, don't they? They absolutely do. Right. So I mean, you um, don't have to like what Twitter does. But you have to recognize that they have the right to do it as long as they're not violating anyone else's rights. I think that that's probably right. You know, the what what I usually tend to say to folks, especially when I'm talking to uh, right of center policymakers, is that Twitter or Facebook or Google get to decide whether they bake the cake or not. Right. Uh, companies have speech and associational rights. But the choices they make will have a real impact in the market, right? So to go back to the example I used earlier, if Twitter decided they were the platform for dogs and not cats and banned everyone who liked cats or posted cat memes or, uh, uh, you know, uh, expressed a preference for cats over dogs, um, that would be really stupid. And they would piss off a large group of their customer base and... Um, while I, as a dog owner, might be happy with their policy, I think the universe of people who would use Twitter would shrink. Private companies have the right to both speak and associate, and sometimes those are to the benefit of growing the size of their business, and sometimes it comes at the expense of that, but that's a choice that they have. But but while we're on the point of scale, I think there's there's one piece that goes really unaddressed in these debates, right? When when we tend to talk about, well, if Twitter changes X, why can't I say Y? Or when Facebook puts into place this policy, it's really frustrating for X reason. And, and you know, we can go into the, the complexity of applying that and all of that. The, the thing that I think gets lost in those debates is just how revolutionary an expansion of speech has happened over really a short period of time. Right. So Twitter is by far the smallest of the big platforms. They have about 300 million uh, monthly active users. Um, Facebook is north of 2 billion, as is YouTube. And just think about that for a minute. Right. Uh, those three companies allow literally billions of people to speak and associate with each other. That is a scale of free expression and communication that is just unparalleled in human history. And that lives on top of all of the other ways we previously had to communicate, right? 
talking to your neighbor, publishing in a newspaper, writing a, a, a book, uh, standing in a park and yelling, right? Like all of the ways that for the, the last couple hundred years might have been the way in which you communicated your ideas to the world. You now have the ability, um, across a wide variety of different platforms with different rules to communicate with millions or potentially billions of people and and that's uh that's something that ought to be celebrated when we talk we can talk about openness but you just you really just kind of did didn't you talk about openness because it allows for so much communication out there an expansion of openness that we have we've not really seen is there anything more about openness as it relates to section 230 we should know no, I think, uh, uh, sorry to jump the gun on you, but I think no, we great. Uh, great. covered that one pretty well. Mm -hmm. Finally, we, we talk about self-actualization. When it comes to Section 230, how do we think about that through the lens of self-actualization? There's a great piece from a couple of years ago that an author published on Medium about growing up in a town of about 200 people in rural North Dakota um, that had one fuzzy radio station in the 80s. Uh, that would sometimes come in and you might be able to get two or three television broadcast channels uh, uh, on a clear day when the weather was decent. Um, cable hadn't yet come to the town when he was in high school. And like a lot of folks who pursue higher education from small towns, he, he left for a bigger city and 18 years later came back and did a series of interviews with people half his age who were high school seniors in the high school he went to in, in that area. And what he talks about in this piece is just the night and day difference in finding people of common interest and finding connections with the outside world that the internet enabled by Section 230 provides, right? So he, he talks to a student who has a pen pal in Portland who he speaks with basically every day. Um, he talks to students who have esoteric interests in different genres of music, music that wouldn't have been available in his local library, that might have been available in the right mail order catalog if he knew which catalog to ask. And suddenly, basically, all of human music is available either for free or at incredibly low cost at their fingertips. And so I, I point to this story because for better and worse, and, and there are downsides to this, and we can talk about them, the long tail of interests, right? Like the kid in rural North Dakota who is interested in polka music from the 1970s can find other people who are similarly share that passion, who can discover that this was a passion that they had about within them that they might never have had the words for or the ability to, to think about. Um, and, and it's not just the sort of entertainment values, though I've used a lot of entertainment examples, it's communities of faith, it's sexual orientation, it's political interests, it's the whole host of sort of human interests. If you are passionate about building the world's greatest bird feeders, and you want to find the community of people who similarly want to talk about that and share designs and swap tips, um, Section 230 enables that. Now, now, there are real costs to that because there are people who have really terrible fringe interests too, and it's important to take those seriously. And, and we can talk about, you know, either now or on a, 
maybe in that, another episode, how you deal with those harms when they emerge. Um, but I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that um, the ability of people to find fellowship with others who share their passions and interests and belief and to discover that about themselves is enabled by the internet in general and section 230 in particular. And when you talk about the government coming in and setting rules or imposing fairness or what have you, imagine the media landscape that that author grew up in. Um, because that, that's what you get when you massively raise the costs of communicating information, you get a relatively small number of people who can usually broadcast one way content, whether it's music or news or information about any sort of topic that is of really broad appeal. This is why every town in America has a top 40 or, uh, you know, adult contemporary radio station. And there's not a lot of radio stations for 1970s polka. What is there about Section 230 that you came into this wanting to discuss that we haven't discussed already? I think the atmospherics around it, um, right? Section 230 often becomes the shorthand for talking about speech enabled by the internet. But there are lots of other directly relevant tools at the government's disposal that either facilitate that speech by creating that open space, the absence of regulation, the, the freedom to innovate, or stymie that. You know, our colleagues, our colleagues, Neil Chilson, uh, who's our senior research fellow for tech and innovation, and Casey Maddox, who heads up AFP's legal and judicial strategy, and also is a senior fellow for free expression. Casey and Neil have a paper with the Knight Institute at Columbia that goes through the history of antitrust law. And when I say that, I can immediately hear the eyes rolling. Um, <laughs> but it's a fascinating set of stories about how the Johnson administration, the Nixon administration, the Kennedy administration all used an incredibly powerful and blunt tool of governments to go after media publishers who they didn't like. Uh, there's a example in the paper of President Johnson going to have a casual conversation with the publisher of one of the largest newspapers in Texas um, because he very much wanted their endorsement for uh, his re-election or his uh, first uh, election as president. And this paper had not endorsed a Democrat in ever, but this paper and its owners had an unrelated business merger where they were trying to merge with a, a different company. And President Johnson reminded him that the Department of Justice's antitrust division could block that merger, could tie them up in courts, could cost them huge amounts of money and legal bills. And it would be a shame if that would happen. And he'd really like their endorsement in the upcoming election. Yeah. And sure enough, for in basically the only time in that paper's existence, they endorsed a Democrat. You had President Kennedy, uh, Paul Matsko, at Cato has a great new book out about how JFK basically single-handedly destroyed conservative talk radio two decades before Rush Limbaugh and by weaponizing the Federal Communications Commission to go and threaten to pull broadcast licenses. Um, and if you don't want to read the whole book, uh, there, he's done a number of podcasts and written about it. But Look, the, the idea that presidents want favorable coverage on media platforms and want to threaten to use the powers of government to get that is not new. What is new is the unparalleled amount of 
freedom and scale and information that something like Section 230 enables, right? Like this is well beyond uh, President Kennedy or President Johnson's wildest dreams for what mass communication could look like. And that's why to politicians on the left and the right, uh, that that power being distributed to people is so scary and why they want someone or something to come in and and make it stop or, or uh, act as their governor over it. And, and I think that's why even when companies are making what we would say is the wrong call, we ought to be in the position and we are in the position to defend their right to make mistakes, uh, to defend their freedom, um, because uh, to do otherwise is to turn over to uh, politicians the power to police speech. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.